Thank you for listening to a Quiet Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Your grace and your mercy. We're talking about things that are countercultural and therefore hard at times to understand in the right way when it comes to even our feelings. Like this, some things I talk about today are going to feel wrong. And I ask that we be shaped by your word, and I pray that our feelings would be shaped by your word. Now we thank you looking into last week, the, the truth that men and women are created in the image of God. And uh, all this earth, the beauty that we see, nothing else has that stamp upon us, image of God, just, just male, female. <coughs> and you've bestowed upon us these beautiful, wonderful things called manhood, womanhood, masculinity, femininity. And help us to understand these things. Help us not buy the lie that that's arbitrary or that's all sociological or that's just a, a human-made construct. Help us to see that this is woven into what it means to be human. And Jesus, help us to all look to you. And I trust that you're going to. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Okay, the city of Corinth was an interesting urban metropolis. The city of Corinth dealt with gender confusion. Much like our world today, specifically in the West, we have gender confusion like crazy. Uh, teenagers at an unprecedented rate in our country today, you can look up studies and statistics on this, are claiming to be transgender. And in fact, it's somewhat trendy in junior high and high school age from schools all across this country to kind of be confused or be pansexual or all fill in the blank. Just uh, the sexual ethic of the day is, is, uh, is pretty uh, wild. The city of Corinth was, uh, was kind of like this. It was an urban center in Greece and there was confusion on what it meant to be a man and what it meant to be a woman, but there was in this city and in the churches of the city a lost masculinity and a lost femininity. Confusion abound. Abounded in the city, there was the temple, uh, the temple of Aphrodite, and there were three other urban area or three other places or two other places making three worship centers of the of the goddess Aphrodite. And Aphrodite was a goddess of beauty and love, and religious per, religious worship of her was dominated by in this city by sexual practices. And so, to worship this god, this goddess, would require sexual practices. And there was one temple, one main temple, and then two other sanctuaries scattered throughout us, as stated, of, of, of Aphrodite, uh, Aphrodite in Corinth. And the temple included, the main temple included at least 1,000 prostitutes. So worship would happen in the city of Corinth by uniting with one of these prostitutes. And what it would offer is a claim of a mystical union to the goddess Aphrodite. So sexual perversion was rampant in the city of Corinth. When, it, when the people of Corinth thought of religion and religious practices, it was almost all sexual. There, were pagan, there was paganism of all sorts, but this was the dominating religion in the city of Corinth. Then when people became Christians, if you remember in, in chapter 18 of the book of Acts, Paul goes in and he stays in the city of Corinth for a year and a half. And he's just laboring in the city of Corinth. God, he gets a vision, a dream. God tells him, there's many in, my, in this city uh, that are mine. 
They don't know it yet, but Paul takes God at his word and stays there for a year and a half. And in that year and a half span, there are people in this confused city who become Christians and now are a part of the church in Corinth. Paul would write three or approximately four letters to this church. We have two of them, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. But what we find in 1st Corinthians is a celebration in the church of sexual perversion. In 1st Corinthians chapter 5, we see that a man was sleeping with his father's wife and the church was, was arrogantly celebrating it. They were not condemning it. They were celebrating it. They were arrogant, Paul says. They were not correcting it. They gathered around it, and it basically was this celebration in the same way that the city of Corinth worshipped. The church had adopted similar worship practices. No big deal. Even though it wasn't explicit worship in their minds, it was at least acceptable. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we find that there were former homosexuals in the church who had been saved, converted, and most likely still dealt with these sorts of temptations, although they were not being acted upon, or maybe were being acted upon and they were being called out of that, but we find in chapter 6 that there were former homosexuals in the church. In the same chapter, we're told that there was rampant sexual immorality, heterosexual immorality going on as well. And, apparently, there were Christians sleeping with prostitutes, and Paul had to address the church telling them not to. Do you not know if you do this? He tells them, sleeping with a prostitute, that two become one flesh, that there's mis there is this spiritual happening that takes place when a man comes together with a woman. But there are Christians still practicing religious worship in the way they used to in the city of Corinth before they were Christians. In chapter 11, we see that the, or in chapter 7, we see that Paul actually has to teach them how sex works. He teaches them how male and female, when they come together in marriage, how the man does not have rights over his body, which was radically different than any culture in the day, and that the woman does not have rights over her body, but they have rights to give themselves to one another as a gift. That they are to give themselves to one another. So Christian sexual ethic is not about getting mine. It's about giving. The Christian sexual ethic is different than any other sexual ethic in the world that says, I want pleasure for myself, therefore I'm going to get it. The Christian sexual ethic is, I want you to experience this. I want you to experience joy. It's about giving yourself away, not getting what's yours. So he had to instruct them about this in chapter 7. And then in chapter 11 we see that Men and women were confused about how to even dress and how to wear, the, wear their hair. They didn't know how their gender was to be externalized. Therefore, men were wearing their hair like women, and women were wearing their hair like men, and basically it was like a shoulder shrug. Who cares? Men can have feminine hair. Women can have masculine hair. No big deal. Paul is going to tell us, we're going to look at it here in a second, chapter 11, that it actually is a big deal. It is a big deal when men dress like women or look like women or women dress like and look like men. In chapter 14, we see that there was gender confusion still about religious worship because we see women taking control of worship services through constant questions. There were constant questions to the point that nothing could be done in, religious, in their gatherings, and that's all that the Corinthian ladies knew. 
That's all they knew. So correction had to come. In chapter 16, we see that the men in the church actually have to be told, act like men. And when we see commands like that, or when we see prohibitions, we have to ask, why are they there? What's happening in the city of Corinth that led the Holy Spirit to write, through the Apostle Paul, to write these churches, these commands or prohibitions? And the reason the command, act like men, had to be written is because they didn't know how to. They needed to be told, to call up to something. Men, act like men, because you're not acting like men. You know what that means? That means that God takes manhood very seriously. It's not okay to be asexual. It's not okay to reject your gender or to oppress your gender and push it down. We are to step up into the men that God has made us to be or the women that God has made us to be. We are not to act like it's no big deal. It just doesn't matter. So Paul actually has to tell them, hey, act like men because they weren't. Corinth, in the church of Corinth, they were simply confused at the gender level. They didn't know what it meant to be a man. They didn't know what it meant to be a woman. And the thread runs through, this thread of gender confusion runs through the pages of Corinthians, of 1 Corinthians, and it runs through the pages of the New Testament and into the Old about manhood and womanhood, and it runs into our world today. 21st century Western world. What does Paul do? What does the Holy Spirit have Paul say to a gender-confused church? Well, he has some things to say that are going to make people in Corinth feel uncomfortable. It wasn't just, it's not just controversial to us today. The things that he said in Corinth would have been a challenge for them to hear in that day because of their cultural confusion. When they're told, act like men, there were probably men there or probably women there. Well, hey, how offensive is that? What do you mean? Why don't you just tell us to be human and be nice? When God told them about marriage or corrected their sexual ethic, well, God's holding back on us. What's going on? You're telling me I can't have my wife and go to the temple and sleep with a prostitute? Gosh, God, what a killjoy. So these things are not just controversial in our day. They're controversial when the, when the city of Corinth got these letters. And they were responsible to repent and obey the Holy Spirit, and so are we. And so, in, in fact, because of these things being so neglected in the church, what's happened over the years is that Christians have cried out for things like traditional marriage, which is the only sort of marriage there is. As one pastor says, same-sex marriage is same-sex mirage. There's no such thing because God defines what marriage is, and there is no such thing except marriage has a definition. A definition, a man and a woman together forever. There's no other definition to marriage. That's, that's what marriage is. So th there is no such thing as same-sex marriage. Same-sex mirage. Okay? Um, but because we've, we've championed this, but we've not actually taught our churches this, we've just assumed that everybody knows what it means to be a man. Everybody knows what it means to be a woman. Do you realize that there are, there are people growing up in the church today that have never learned at all what it means to be a boy and what it means to be a girl? And churches who say, we believe in traditional marriage, but the sexual ethic in the church, even, is I'm going to get mine. It's a self-centered ethic. This says pleasure is mine to go get, not mine to give. And we wonder, okay, the church, why is there divorce in the church? Why, do people, why are people confused? Why have we embraced the ideas of the world when it comes to gender? It's because we've been scared to death to talk about it. 
It's because we don't actually dive in and talk about these things. But Paul tells the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the church in Corinth, act like men. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 2 through 16. We're going to talk about men wearing long hair and women wearing short hair for a little bit. One of the most confusing passages in all the Bible. But I think we can get some clarity, and I think this passage is going to challenge us. I think this chapter is a treasure trove to our world today of, of goodness. I think it's a treasure trove to the church. Uh, we talked a little bit about it in our small group this last week. And um, I was even able to get some clarity by um, some comments from our small group and help think about this in a little bit better way. But I think this is a treasure trove for us. I really do. Starting in verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of the wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Pause real quick. Headship is not the meaning. So when we talk about headship, we just get this directly from 1 Corinthians. God the Father is the head of the Son, and that's not the meaning. And it's not a, a value statement about the Son. It's not saying God the Father is more valuable than the Son. It's speaking to Trinitarian order. Equality and order. Equality doesn't mean less than. Jesus is still fully, fully God. And then every man, whether husband or not, has a head. And it's Jesus. Jesus is our head. Headship is a good thing. It's not a demeaning thing. And then the head of a wife is her husband. It's not the head of a wife is all men. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Starting again at verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered and with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as, this, as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But, it is, but since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair off or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image of the glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For a woman was made from God, or made from man, so now man is now born from, of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is his disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for her covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Okay, so there's some key verses here that unlock this passage for us. It just kind of opens it up for us. We're talking about head coverings and long hair. What does it mean to have your head covered? And anybody else confused by reading these verses? Okay, half of us are confused. <laughs> So there are a couple key verses. Verse 14 and 15 are really helpful for us. And here's what I'm going to say, long hair and short hair. 
What we're talking about here is femininity and masculinity. The gender confusion is woven again through the chapter of 1 Corinthians. You can wear long hair in a feminine way or a masculine way. Long hair doesn't automatically equal feminine. In this society, it did. Only women wore long hair, apparently, in the city of Corinth. And men were, therefore, if they were going to look masculine, look male, they were going to have their hair cut a manly, masculine way. And if women were going to look, look like a woman, she was going to wear her hair in one way. But here's what's happening. They didn't care. They weren't embracing that at all. Men were wearing their hair like women, and women were hair, wearing their hair like men. They embraced the way of culture. Even though there still was a cultural standard that this is how men wear their hair, and this is how women wear their hair in Corinth, it didn't matter to them. They did whatever they want with their hair. Now, I, I say this is unlocks the passage because I think it actually does. Because in verse 14 and 15, we see that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For hair is given to her for her covering. So ladies, I'll just say this. If your hair is, is feminine and it is externally obvious that you are embracing your femininity, your hair is your covering. And if you are not embracing your femininity and intentionally not caring to embrace your femininity externally, then you are actually in violation. You need to embrace your femininity and wear your hair in a feminine way. Men, if we wear long hair in a feminine way, we are in sin. We need to embrace our masculinity externally. And Paul tells us the reason for this. Paul tells us that nature itself teaches us some things about manhood and womanhood. His appeal is to natural relation, a natural revelation, and to natural law. What's happening? The gender, the gender confusion that was happening internally was, happen, was being expressed externally. Men wearing hair like women, women hair, wearing hair like men. And Paul says, nature itself teaches us that this is wrong. His appeal is to common sense. His appeal is to common sense. Nature itself teaches us that men are men and women are women. But we live in a day where exceptions are the rule. Let me say that again. We live in the day, we live in a day in our world where exceptions become rules. Where the minority gets the law. Common sense is not valued in a society of experts. Common sense is looked down upon based on exceptions. And so we find in our world today exceptions for everything to try to discredit either common sense or general principle. And so if we can just find that one exception, we can discredit and do what we want. And in an anti-authority day that looks at everything and says authority is bad... We come to the scripture and automatically we're just thinking exceptions, 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 exceptions. Because we live in a world where the minority sets the principle for everybody. But Paul calls upon nature itself. We don't value common sense because we have answers to everything underneath our thumbs. And we can disprove anybody about almost anything. But in this passage, Paul says, nature teaches us that this is wrong. If you're a man, 
be a man. And if you're a woman, be a woman. It's disgraceful to reject our gender. It's disgraceful. And nature teaches us this. You don't have to be rocket scientists. Just wake up to common sense. That's why in chapter 16, Paul has to tell them through all this, tells the men, men, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. You know why he had to tell them that? Because they were not being watchful. They were not standing firm in the faith. They were not acting like men and they were being very weak. So Paul told them, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men for goodness sake and be strong. And if Christian men won't set this example for the world, I promise you the world out there won't set the example well at all. Amen. So men, what is it that God is calling us to? And what is it, the expectation upon the world, that God is expecting of the men of this world? Whether they recognize it or not. What does God expect out of men? Glad you asked. Three things. Work, keep, rule. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2. And look at the created order, and let's zero in again, kind of, kind of focus in on what God created Adam to do. In Genesis chapter 2.15, we get explicit words. We know exactly what God created Adam to do, and it's with two primary words. And then our third word we're going to get in Genesis chapter 3, and it is the word rule. Men are built to work, to keep, and to rule. That's what we're built for. We are built for these primary things. We are built for working, for keeping or guarding what is in our area of responsibility. And then we are built to rule. Not rule in a self-centered way, but a self-sacrificing way that says, I will die for you and I will live for you. First, let's look at work. Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and Keep it. There's our two words. One little verse. Work and keep. God put Adam in the garden, made him, put him here. Adam, you're built for this garden, and my design for you is to work and keep this place. Work and keep. Work in the garden. Men are built first for work. Men were built for this. Look at our, <laughs> calling other men to look at our bodies, but look at our bodies. We, we are built, I said it last week, one of the most controversial things we can say in our day today is that men are stronger than women. <coughs> and again, the exceptions jump out at us like crazy. No, no, no. I know, some, I know, I know a woman that's stronger. Like, men are stronger than women. Okay, remember, let's not throw away common sense because of exceptions. Men are built for work. The way our body is physically designed with testosterone and not... Estrogen is built to be stronger, bigger bone mass, bigger in size and in strength. Our muscle density is stronger. That's why if everybody in here, if we did muscle or muscle mass tests or body fat tests, men have less body fat than women do. That's by design. It tells us nature itself just teaching us things about how we're built and what we're built for. Men are built to work. God gave us shoulders for a reason. We are called to square them up and put our hands to the plow and work. This is the theme of both the Old and New Testament. A man who doesn't work doesn't eat. Work hard 
Every man is called to this work. Every single man. And so much so that in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8 says, that if anyone does not provide for his, that's, that is a man, his household, and especially for the members of his household, he, this is not male-female, this is gender-specific, he has denied the faith, and worse, is it worse than an unbeliever? We don't even have a frame of reference for what kind of man is this who refuses to work to provide for his family. There's always going to be exceptions, seasons, where the wife has to go to work because the husband was laid off. There's always going to be outside of the home, I mean. There's always going to be exceptions here. But again, we don't throw out common sense and natural law and the way God created things in just natural revelation and then special revelation that man's built for work. We don't throw it out because of the exceptions. We know somebody one time whose husband fell and he couldn't work anymore because he's in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. Okay, we're not out here looking for exceptions here. Men are built to work. Period. And a man who doesn't work is shameful. We should go to bed tired at night. We should work our jobs and then work in our places that we live on the outside of the house. Building, taking care of, mowing. There are times that we're going to have to pay people to mow our yard. It's not wrong to pay people to mow your yard. But men are called simply to work. Being a stay-at-home dad is a sin, biblically. This sounds really wrong in our Again, there are exceptions, for goodness sake, so we won't just lose it. Everybody's hair get caught on fire. But a man to not work is sin. It's, it's not okay. So sometimes, for seasons, things like that can happen. But to make a decision for the wife to work outside of the home and, to, and for the husband to stay at home is shameful. This is how you become a popular preacher in a liberal town like Carbondale. Preach it. <laughs> okay, work. Keep. What does keep mean? The word keep. We are built to work and to keep this garden. Keep in the Hebrew means maintain, observe, guard, protect. Because this is a thing of beauty and valuable, it is to be guard, guarded. It's valuable. Whatever comes into this garden, whatever God brings to the man, he is to keep it or maintain it, guard it, protect it, because it is a thing to be guarded. It is a thing of value. Adam will have invested interest in being watchful and to keep creation in order and safe. He is charged with this. He is commissioned with this. This is God's charge to Adam, not yet to Eve. Specifically talking to Adam, you are called to work and keep this place. Men are built to be guardians of this planet. Dragon slayers, when they come, stomp the head of the serpent when it comes around the bride. We're built to be on guard, to be watchful, to protect and provide. You can go and ask my son, what, are men, what do men do? Protect and provide. Protect and provide. We are keepers of this place. God would create Eve, and then he would bring Eve to Adam. Adam would name her woman, but at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And he is to keep her. If the intruder comes in, 
you step up and we have a responsibility, Adam had a responsibility to protect and provide for her. Now, again, we know this, not just in the church, we know this in the world as well. And I want to show you, and you've probably heard me say about this, I've talked about this before, but it's just so hypocritical, it is so, so hypocritical that we see on a show on ABC, Grey's Anatomy, we see a show, Christina, it was, what's her name in the show, Dr. Christina, I wrote it down, I just remember this scene so vividly, I've just seen a handful of, don't want to help myself here, I've seen a handful of Grey's Anatomy episodes. Um, Dr. Christina Yang, in the show, is a very liberal in every way you can define liberal uh, person, woman, doctor, she seems to be, from everything I can understand from the show, a great doctor, doing her job well. But there is a scene that is so powerful, that just speaks to this truth at a very basic level that we all know, and we all just suppress this truth. We all know this, Christian and non-Christian alike, and we just push it down, and we act like it's not there. It's Romans chapter 1, just denying the truth, of pushing it down. <coughs> There is a fiancé, or the, a, 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 a young man and a young woman that come into the ER, and the story unfolds, and come, we kind of get the story, she has a bullet wound. The girl has a bullet wound. Come to find out, the man jumped behind the woman and used her as a shield, which should be celebrated according to our world today, right? Because equality, equality, equality. Same, same, same. Should be some, finally, women are taking bullets for men. Should be saying that. But that's insane. And even liberal ABC knows this. And the writers wrote this in. You know what Dr. Christina Yang said? What kind of man are you? What kind of man are you? Because she even knew. The writers know. It's wrong for a man to jump behind a woman. It is wrong. It is shameful. The world knows this. When false teaching invades the TV, it invades the classroom, when it invades the churches, when it invades our little boys' life or our little girls' lives, men guard the minds of those whom God has brought to them and entrusted to them. As God brought Eve, God has brought men, if you are married, or those you are friends with, neighbors, friends, people in your local church, if you're a single man, God brings people into your life, and you are to be responsible for anybody that's close to you in your life. Keep, guard, protect your friends, protect your family, protect the little ears that are around you. We have to take it seriously. Men, guard the minds of the families and all that are around us. We take it seriously, our responsibility to work and keep. We need to use common sense and general revelation when we think about man and woman issues. The common sense principles of the home, men protect their home from intruders, have a consistent application in the church and the world as well. There is a consistent application. I said it a couple weeks ago. It is. It, it would, again, I'm going to keep using this word shameful. It would be shameful if any man in here, if any man in here heard rustling in the living room or heard a window break or heard a door pop open or the garage door come up, it would be shameful beyond a degree for you to say, honey, go find out what's going on. And that basic principle of men being protectors has consistent application here and in this world. The United States, okay, war, for instance. 
Men are built for war. We are built to be protectors of this country. Women are not built for war. Men are built to fight and protect in the home. And that application that I just gave about an intruder coming into the house has application for this country. And for every other military throughout the world. We just had a U.S. court rule that it was unconstitutional, unconstitutional for women to not be included in the draft. Women cannot be included in the draft. This is, we should mourn and weep and repent for a country that is full of males who, who could protect and instead we say, women step up, go to the front lines, take bullets for me. While some men sit on their couches in Carbondale in southern Illinois enjoying the fruit of women getting bullets through the face. But even this sounds weird to our ears. Misogynistic. We're just trying to oppress women. But we're suppressing the truth. The third piece, rule. Men are built to rule. We see this in chapter 3, verse 16. The curse goes to Eve. And we're told, we'll get into this next week a little bit more, but your desire shall be for your husband and he will rule over you. This is a consequence that came upon Eve because of her sin. This rule is not a good rule. This rule is that men will rule in a bad way. The curse to the woman was not that men would rule in a good, benevolent, godly, Christ-like way, but that men would rule badly. And we talked about that a little bit last week where we see this world ruled or dominated by men who have been, who have been um, at, like leaving responsibility and have either been radically passive or men who have been domineering and using everybody in their life for self-serving purposes. So instead of seeing a wife or seeing women as objects to be adored, loved, protected, and take care of, we see them as a sex object to get ours. And it's sinful and it's wrong. So this third piece, though, however, this rule speaks to how God has built us in Christ. There is a different kind of rule that we are called to, men. We are called to reject women oppressive rule. Reject it entirely. And we are called to step up into women flourishing ruling. Men are called to rule as Christ-like, humble servants, not as dictator tyrants. And the answer to toxic masculinity, I mentioned that last week, is not rejection of masculinity, it's the real deal. The answer for toxic patriarchy isn't a rejection of humble male leadership, it's that men would step up and give their very lives and die for those who are vulnerable. And here's the deal. We know the real deal when we see it. We know a real man when we see it. Men, you know this. You know the men in your life that you'd say, I'd follow that man anywhere. And you know the men that you see, you should say, I wouldn't follow him anywhere. You know the man that if you got in a fight in the back alley somewhere, I want him with me. You know the men who will stand up for truth. 
And you know jellyfish kinds of men. We know the real deal. I want to appeal again to our world where we actually know this is true. And we just continue to suppress the truth. But when we see it, everybody jumps on the bandwagon and says, oh yes, but that man is a good man. Everybody's seen the TV show This Is Us. See the TV show This Is Us. Okay. Now there's some LGBT stuff coming out just because it's at every TV show. So there's some things that aren't good. But that show, the whole point is it centers on this man named Jack Pearson, the dad in the show. And basically the show is about the power of a good man and the effect of a good man. As you watch that show, you see real masculinity on display. He has his demons. He struggles with alcoholism. He, he, he has some things that he struggled with. But the way he protects and provides his, his family is incredible. And as you watch that, you just get online. Every, every woman loves Jack Pearson, you know, and every man wants to be him. There's hardly an episode that goes by that I don't weep thinking about the power of a, power of a good man. You see the effect of this man's life, of his rule over his wife and family well. You see the effect that it goes generations. The power of a good man. Everybody wants their dad to be proud of them. Have you ever met somebody who doesn't? Everybody growing up wants their dad to be a hero. The power of a good man. Everybody knows it when they see it. And if you see Jack Pearson, he does flamboyantly offensive things like buys a vehicle for his family without his wife being in the room. He goes to negotiate and says, honey, I got this. She goes out with the kids, buys a vehicle. And viewers celebrate. What a great man. Let's be consistent. He's a misogynistic, women oppressive, woman hater. Probably a racist too. But we see it on screen and we're like, that's a good man. A man that would take responsibility for his family. A man who loves the right things. And a man whose legacy, we watch the Sandlot, heroes get remembered. Legends never die. It's kind of I want to rule well. This world needs real men badly. 60% of the youth suicides in this country come from fatherless homes, according to the U.S. Department of Health.com or something like that. Five times the average. 90% of homeless and runaway children come from fatherless homes, 32 times more than the national average. 85% of all children who share behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes, 20 times the average. 80% of rapists with anger problems come from fatherless homes, 14 times the average. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes, 9 times the average. The United States government knows that the issue here is that we need real men even. Go to fatherhood.gov, run by the United States of America, and you can read all these statistics about the problems of our country being directly related to no fathers in the home. This world's dying because of lack of men. And then we blame toxic masculinity. And 
Men, to be honest, down to the ages, we've earned a lot of that. Because of our lack of actually knowing what God is actually calling us to. Women actually suffer as well. One in five women. One in 71 men will be raped at some point in their lives. According to the National Sexual Violence Research Center. When men rule badly, things go wrong. When men rule badly, things go wrong. When men rule badly, there, there, there creates a vacuum in our society, it's in, our, in our world. And upon seeing the need, good women who love Jesus step up because men sit down. And the answer is not continually calling women to step up and do what God's called men to do. The answer is men get up out of the chair. Be who God's called you to be. Take responsibility. Don't act like it's a good thing to never grow up. Growing up is awesome. And we need more men to do it. Maybe in the next 20, 30 years, 40 years, however long we have together, maybe we become really weird. And maybe Carbonell begins to take notice or Southern Illinois. Those are real men. Because even though you may not be able to put your finger on all the reasons why, when there is 